Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Humility Gap podcast. I'm Bethan Willis, and throughout this series, I'll be talking to academics, politicians, and public figures to find out how we can become more open-minded. We'll be looking at the virtue of intellectual humility in order to help us really focus in on the habits and practices which can enable us to become more open-minded. In this episode, I talk to Professor Sarah Williams, Professor of History at Regents College, Vancouver. Sarah also has deep roots in Oxford, having spent several years as tutor, fellow and lecturer at Harris Manchester, Trinity and Lincoln. As a 19th and 20th century cultural historian, her recent research has focused on the life and work of Josephine Butler, the 19th century campaigner and mother of modern ideological feminism. Throughout the episode, we explore whether intellectual humility is a virtue which makes sense for women. We also question how humility fits with a desire to gain attention for marginal voices and injustice. Along the way, we touch on themes relating to the academy, knowledge, power, freedom and feminism. We begin the first part of this episode with the story of Josephine Butler and the way in which she sought to shine a light on deep injustices and marginalisation with humility. Should we explain who Josephine Butler is and a little bit about what what she was doing? Um, Most historians would agree that Butler is the mother of modern ideological feminism. She was born in 1828, dies in 1906, and her chief um, public role was to be the leader of the campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Legislation, which is a specific series of acts of parliament made in the 1860s, which allowed the state, government, police, to apprehend any woman suspected of prostitution in port or garrison towns and to subject them to an um, examination to see whether they carried venereal disease. And if they did, then they could be uh, kept in a locked prison unit for up to nine months. And for Josephine Butler, she understood that as a, as a, a fundamental injustice because it suspended habeas corpus. It allowed women to be uh, incarcerated without evidence. And it left, there was no equivalent examination for men And it therefore represented a sexual double standard, with women being seen as the agents of evil and pollution and sin, and men allowed to, as it were, sow their wild oats and to behave in certain ways towards women, to in fact treat them as chattel and objects without any responsibility for the consequences of those actions. So Butler's work in this repeal movement was actually entering the public sphere in order to change particular laws and to do so significantly on behalf of those who had no agency under the law, specifically those women charged with prostitution. And uh, her understanding of what she was doing was, as it were, taking up the cry of what she would call the outcast woman and representing that cry in the public sphere. And it's that movement that develops over the period from the 1860s through to the passing of the Criminal Law Amendment Act in the 1880s. That period of time is the period in which the feminist movement, the women's movement, as we understand it historically, took shape. And it takes shape around these themes. 
integrally related to what would it be like for women to represent the weak and the vulnerable within the public sphere? And how would women's representation, their constitutional participation, change the very way in which governance itself is understood? So Butler was all about voice, about representation, and ultimately the move to, to get female suffrage. Okay. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that gives background that on her. Sense. And how how did she go about doing that? So how was she using her voice? Was she speaking in the same ways as men would, or did she take a different format, or what did she do? The thing I find so inspiring about Butler is her utter unwillingness to compromise to the existing system in her femininity. So she 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 uses almost every voice you can imagine, a manifesto, a petition to government. She uses the media. She um, engages in legal representation of those who are not represented under the law. And she uses all of the, as it were, techniques, the instruments of being heard within her culture. But she does so um, this is going to sound crazy because I don't think second and third wave feminists feel very comfortable with this. Okay. With, with, a, with quietness and a distinctive femininity. And so when, when I've been reading through the sort of eyewitness accounts, people who encountered Butler as a speaker, both when she gave evidence to parliamentary commission or when she stood up at Pontefract and talk to electors. Audiences recount the same thing over and over. They are impacted by her, as it were, uncompromising femininity and dignity and her quietness. And so these women embodied this radical confidence in a way that was, within her own cultural reference, incredibly feminine. Um, and I, I don't, that's, those are difficult words to even express yeah. because we don't even, I don't even feel comfortable with the notion of the feminine as though yeah. it was some kind of absolute category. Yeah. But within Butler's own frame of reference, working yeah. in the 19th century, yeah. it's actually incredibly powerful. What do you think some of the challenges were that she faced? She was pelted with excrement. She okay. was... Uh, experienced four different arson attacks. She had constant death threats. Okay. Because essentially she was exposing yeah. the hypocrisy of the male establishment. Yeah. Um, but she continued throughout that as this kind of quiet... Steady. Yeah. But at the same time, ragingly angry. Right, okay. At the very system itself. So, but how did she deal with that anger? Because that's another question about how we present those emotions publicly I mean for her she prayed yeah and and prayer was the primary practice of her life through which the virtue of humility as she understood it was cultivated her anger is expressed as it were on behalf of the outcast woman as she would call by calling on God who defends the outcast to protect the outcast against the male establishment who are doing the outcasting yeah. and um, so prayer is not insignificant in the history of feminism because actually what Butler did everywhere she went was she created networks of prayer. If Parliament won't hear you, God will. 
That's the essential message, which is ultimately a very radical message. So wherever she went, she set up networks of prayer. And those networks in themselves were radical because they represented the powerful elites, the respectable middle class women, and they represented those who were completely disenfranchised and on the street. Drawing on Butler's life, in the second part of this episode, we discuss the ways in which Butler's approach to public discourse might help us as we seek to understand the role of humility in our own society. We begin in particular by considering the ways in which humility can help us to relate across differences in our culture today. It seems to me that the virtue of humility demands of us that we don't give way to confidently embodying our human differences. It almost starts from that position. And having the confidence, as well as the humility, to enter into relationship with other people in society without, as it were, the structures of that society determining how we're going to do difference. So we talk about difference, and yet in many ways we're even more conformed in the way that we actually operate in our society by the crude grids of utilitarianism, for example. So explain that a little bit more. Well, you see, the the utilitarian piece, you know, the, 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 the idea that we adopt means for certain ends kind of behavioralism that uses, for example, beautiful things like virtues simply as instruments for our performance within the public sphere, we lapse into that in our culture because that utilitarian way of thinking about things is in the very substance of late capitalism. Our whole way of organising society is about means and ends. Yeah. And, and in, in the end, that can lead us to adopting instruments and ways of performing, which in many ways then become conformed to that which is acceptable in the ends of our society. But what if the ends need themselves to be critiqued? Yeah. Okay. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I wonder if we can just dig in a little bit more to techniques and practices and make that a bit more concrete. So um, are there examples of where we might be thinking of intellectual humility becomes a technique in discussion. Could we kind of give that a story or a kind of concrete yes. example? And then also practices. Um, let's think about what kind of practices we, we could be talking about, which um, are more than skin deep versions of kind of intellectual humility. Yes. So well, yeah, what's, what's the problem? Can I give a kind of banal example? Yeah, yeah. I've sat in classrooms before listening to lectures as a faculty member um, by male colleagues even a lecture on feminism in which we're talking about the inclusion of marginal voices critiquing of categories of power the vital importance of fundamental equality and that lecture is given and then there's five minutes for questions And then when questions are answered, they are rapidly quashed, reframed, answered, dismissed, answer given, commodity 
produced. And, and the way in which the actual interactions relationally take place in the classroom, the embodied practices of the classroom, negate the theoretical content that students are being given. And, and, and in, in other words, humility on the part of the teacher demands more than simply believing that it's important to have debate. It means that they actually have to listen to their students. And one of the ways professors have to listen to their students is by marking their papers carefully, listening to student voices, caring about the sentences their students write, thinking about assignments that give students agency in the material. By allowing students to pose questions, to challenge the fundamental frameworks, by the professor, instead of answering a question with an answer, as it were, meeting a question with another question, meeting a question with an invitation to another person in the classroom to consider giving an answer to that question by generating discourse. So the very embodied practices of, of the day-to-day -day interrelationships between students and professors, for example, for the practice to cultivate humility there has to be the exercise of listening and for that listening to be really genuine and for the possibility that the professor listening to the student may, in fact, qualify, shift, open up their conclusions to real interrogation. And um, so that would be an embodied practice, actual listening. The virtue of holding back the imposition of one's understanding on another, that itself is opening up new possibilities in the academy and in the public sphere. So that's wonderful. And it's like that, 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 that gives opportunity. But if that is merely a style in which we are giving the impression of open-mindedness without the embodied practices of actual listening, and that being rooted in the genuine belief that I cannot arrive at understanding alone, that I need relationship with other people if I am going to understand, that requires a transformation of how we understand what knowledge itself is and how we obtain knowledge. And the instrumentalizing of the academy has commodified knowledge such that knowledge acquisition is we become technicians of the academy. We acquire the credentials. We become qualified. We commodify and we package degrees. And so the very way in which we go about ordering life in the academy and even in education lower down, as it were, even back to secondary education from higher education, itself encourages an instrumentalizing of knowledge which is a practice that is going to lead to an instrumentalizing of other people for our own aggrandizement. And so we might then talk about intellectual humility, but unless it's actually grounded in a genuine humility towards knowledge itself, which is about wonder as well as accreditation, sheer delight as well as the objective of getting a degree, um, becoming more fully human in learning, that learning is an intrinsically human act. Um, 
And these things are being quashed out by the commodification of knowledge itself. And, and we cannot simply adopt styles to modify that without looking much more deeply and interrogating much more deeply how is it that we're actually understanding the very meaning of knowledge and what knowledge is for? Because it's, in our society, knowledge is for productivity. It's for capacity. It's for employability. Yeah, and so when we see it like that, it becomes non-relational. But yeah. when we have a correct understanding of knowledge, what would the end of knowledge be then? This wonder becoming more fully human. Um, that leads us to a more relational understanding of knowledge, which enables us to kind of practice intellectual humility yeah and that knowledge that knowledge for the way the academy is set up is highly individualized so we we do acquire knowledge in higher education largely through the unit of the individual person my degree my credentials and so knowledge acquisition becomes divorced even at the level of the classroom from actual relationships actual discursive relationships with other human beings. And when I look back on the medieval period, for example, the way in which degrees were given in the medieval period was through a disputation. In other words, you become a master when you enter into a dialogue with somebody who's been in dialogue with the subject for a very, very long time, and you can dialogue with them well, you become a master. Yeah. And as it were, our equivalent of you graduate. And it... We have, we've got, I, I, I believe we have to change our relationship to what we see knowledge for. Knowledge is ultimately for the flourishing of the whole of human society. Knowing our history is an integral part of the flourishing of human society. And I believe that enough to spend my adult life in archives as a historian because I believe that quick knowledge Fake knowledge, yeah. just soundbite knowledge, is not enough because it isn't substantial. It's not transformative. It doesn't enable us to challenge ourselves about who we really are if we don't know our past. And you can think about all the different disciplines in those kinds of almost metaphysical ways, thinking about how do they constitute what we understand to be the good, the moral good, the ends of our society. There's something coming out of that, which is saying um, that intellectual humility requires a desire to be transformed, doesn't it, to some extent? So we won't be able to cultivate intellectual humility if we want to simply stay where we are. Is that, do you think that's correct? I, I do think it's correct. And I also think it, there's another dimension to it, which we, we could talk about Polanyi, in a sense, that actually um, my education might be for the benefit of somebody else. So the onus of, on me as a teacher might be to serve the interests of my students' understanding with the knowledge that I have. And the way that it's set up in higher education, in the academic life, you do acquire knowledge for your own aggrandizement in career terms. You write articles that will add to your CV. You write books that will lead you down that tenure track towards professorship. But what if my role as a teacher was the facilitation 
of other people's understanding rather than knowledge being for me. And that, that, that changes the way in which teaching functions within the academy at a, a very fundamental level. Um, and it will then change the relationship between the student and the teacher. Um, and as a teacher of the humanities, I see my role fundamentally to continually challenge society to ask deep questions about who are we? What is the good? What is the good we seek? What is the good life? Is there such a thing as a good life? What does human flourishing consist of? And so my, my work, looking both at the good aspects of history and the appallingly bad aspects of history, is for us to have, as a society, as it were, profound self-knowledge and sense of direction. And I see the role of the academic, as it were, to have a, um, it, can I use the word prophetic voice, countercultural voice, of a way of looking in and being able to offer critique, not to deconstruct, but to construct something which is good for culture. So I, I would see that as the end goal of the academy and sheer inquiry itself. Yeah. The beauty of it. That's great. I think when we're talking there, we are talking about um, humility exercised by those with some status. And are we taking account of the fact that exercising humility is, is much more difficult, I think, when you don't have a certain status from which to exercise it from or a certain space where your voice is already heard? Does that make sense? Yes. So people who are seriously, seriously on the margin, so perhaps the people that Josephine Butler was talking about or to, those women. I, th I think sometimes in our culture, we mistake being heard for being powerful. And sometimes you can be powerful without being heard. And equally, you can be heard and robbed of all power. And then we have to come back to defining what we mean by power. And for me, power and freedom are integrally linked. And freedom is something which doesn't require power for it to flourish. So you can be disempowered and free. And that sounds like a paradox, it sounds like a contradiction. But I do believe it's profoundly true. And so I think that the emphasis in our culture is often um, the imperative of being heard to be free. But freedom, in the way I look at, for example, a character like Josephine Butler, comes from living one's whole life with practices that are truly free, that are not subject to the pressures of conformity within the existing system. And for women, that, those women, disadvantaged women that Butler worked with, for example, was um, finding alternative means of employment, entering into relationships which allowed them to be represented, 
um, for middle-class women to engage in acts of friendship with women outside their social sphere. These are practices of resistance. And practices of resistance are the hallmark, as it were, of real freedom, when ordinary life itself is transformed from the ground upwards. Um, and being heard may or may not be important. It may be more important to be heard when you are shouting for somebody else and their own recognition than being heard oneself. So I think we can sometimes substitute the need to be heard for our concentration on real practices of transformative resistance to conformity of the system. And the point that I've been trying to make rather badly in a way is that in the activity of being heard, we sometimes adopt voices that allow us to be heard, which cause us to lose our freedom. Because in the end then, we begin to conform to the ways in which our society says you're meant to have a voice. This is what voice looks like. And if you don't have this kind of voice and you don't obey these rules, you will not be heard. But being heard and being free are not the same thing. That's really, really helpful, I think, um, to separate out freedom, being heard, um, practices of humility and resistance. Um, yeah, that's really... Justice, then, is a different issue. There can there likely will be points when matters of basic human justice confront us. So, for example, as a woman in the academy, my embodied practices of freedom are not to allow my behaviour to be set by an agenda formed within a male hierarchy, allowing myself practices of real freedom, which are not reactive, they're not retrenched. Um, but inhabiting who I am in that space with freedom, confidence. There may well come a point, and I have experienced this in my own career, where misogynistic mindsets lead to unjust discrimination on grounds of gender. And when you hit those points of injustice, they are unbelievably difficult to know what to do with. Because most of the time, in my experience, those injustices are insidiously embedded within the system. They're not articulated. And therefore, intellectual humility that might allow me to enter into debate about those injustices is somehow murky because no one's naming the misogyny, which is a presuppositional category, so embedded within this system that we can't even articulate it. It's like the fish in the water. And, and, and so when naming injustice, naming it, and being able to say, this is wrong, in my opinion, is also an act of humility. So what, what does this idea of intellectual humility bring to the party? Is it helpful? Is it helping women? Is it helping us move towards that free expression of our unique uh, humanness rather than an aping um, 
of others based on power structures, etc. So do you think intellectual humility has got some value? I absolutely, I absolutely do. It, it seems to me that the very fact that we're having this conversation about intellectual humility is opening up and also demonstrating that we are asking fundamental questions about categories of knowledge, about intellectual hierarchies, about the very meaning of education itself. And so that to me is part of the the postmodern turn, it's part of a post-colonial turn, it's also part of a feminist turn, as it were. We've broken open many of the assumptions and presuppositional categories. And it seems to me, therefore, that intellectual humility is incredibly important because it's changing the ground rules for the way in which we are having conversations. And that's good. My fear is that we stop there and that we don't focus sufficiently on our embodied practices every day in the way we go about our work, the way we go about our relationships, such that genuine humility becomes a way of life, not just a style. <laughs>